Case number 13-5368 at L. Priests for Life at L. Appellants v. United States Department of Health and Human Services at L. Mr. Muse for Appellants, Priests for Life at L. Mr. Francisco for Appellants, Roman Catholic Archbishop of Washington at L. And Mr. Stern for the Appellees. May it please the Court. You'll just wait until we get people settled here. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the Court. I'm Robert Muse from the American Freedom Law Center. It's my honor and privilege to represent the Priests for Life plaintiffs in this important case involving the fundamental right to religious freedom. My hope is to reserve two minutes of my allotted ten-minute time for rebuttal. Now, the resolution of these cases turns on the answer to really a straightforward question. Absent interests of the highest order, may the government force plaintiffs to take actions that violate their religious beliefs. And under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, the answer is clearly no. And there's no dispute here as to the sincerity of the plaintiff's religious objection to the mandate and the so-called accommodation or their theological basis for the objection. Moreover, it's uncontroverted that plaintiffs want to operate their organizations in accordance with the tenets of their Catholic faith. That is an exercise of religion. So similar in many respects to Gilardi, the case decided by this Court, the only dispute touches on the characterization of the burden. Does the mandate substantially burden plaintiff's religious exercise? It plainly does. Now, the lower courts held and the government responds that this so-called accommodation allows the plaintiffs to opt out of taking any actions that violate their religious beliefs. But that assertion is not true. In fact, that assertion is contradicted by the plaintiff's clear, consistent, and undisputed representation of their beliefs in the record in this Court. Can I ask you a question about Gilardi? Yes, sir. In Gilardi, the controlling opinion said that the contraceptive mandate, this was at page 1217 carrying over to 1218, that the contraceptive mandate demands that owners like the Gilardis meaningfully approve and endorse the inclusion of contraceptive coverage in their company's employer-provided plans over whatever objections they may have. So that's how the Court described the burden. Are you saying that that is to be decided in this case in a subjective manner? 
that that's a subjective test or that that's a legal test for the court to determine? Well, the, the question of their religious exercise, that is, that is for the plaintiffs to decide. That's the plaintiff's determination. The plaintiffs have determined that this so-called accommodation, and it's, it's quite frankly, it's very similar to the situation that you just described there in Gilardi, because the, under the so-called accommodation, the plaintiffs are still having to uh, contract with an insurance provider who is ultimately going to provide the contraceptive coverage to their health care plan participants and beneficiaries. And then through the self-certification, they're required to authorize that very coverage, and they object to doing that. And then they have to maintain this coverage, which is then going to provide the their insurance coverage, which is then going to provide the contraceptive coverage to their plan participants and beneficiaries so long as they so long as they remain part of the although, plan. Although the, so the purpose fact of the accommodation was precisely so that their plan would not have to be responsible for, for providing the coverage. The, the Affordable Care Act regulations carve it out so that it's no longer the plaintiff's plan that's providing it, but someone else. And, the, and I thought your challenge was to the mechanism by which that carve-out and exclusion of that coverage is effectuated. But let me ask you, we... We as a court have to interpret the statute, and we have a statutory term here that limits the kinds of burdens from which people like your clients get accommodations to burdens that are substantial. And I understand your opening to emphasize the sincerity and the theological basis. And I'm just wondering, as a judge, is there anything that a plaintiff could sincerely object to that would not constitute a substantial burden, and can you give us any examples to help us in applying that statutory you know, limitation? The, the, the court is limited, and, and the, the case law is very clear, that what the religious exercise that is being, that is being affected here, you have to rely on the, the plaintiff's announ announcement of that. So the fact that the priest for life or these other plaintiffs find that it is morally reprehensible that they are being forced to engage in a complicit wrong through the actions required under this accommodation, the court has to accept that. Okay. The question now, the burden, what Gilardi said, is how do you know if the burden becomes substantial? Exactly. They say if, they, if the plaintiffs are being put to a Hobson's choice. So they can either obey, the, follow the sacred tenets of their faith, which prohibit them from being complicit in this moral wrong that the accommodation is requiring them to do, or here now they face draconian penalties that threaten the very existence of the organization. The fact that they've been in place of this Hobson's choice, which is what Gilardi said, makes the burden substantial. But the purpose of the accommodation is to get them out of that Hobson's choice. But the problem is that doesn't do it. Because it, you can, as much as the government may want to parse, well, all you have to do is sign a form, or all you have to do is submit a certification. Well, the Supreme Court sort of said, couldn't send Thomas, all he has to do is turn a wrench. The fact that Thomas didn't have an objection, this pacifist, to turning a wrench in a roll foundry that, that produced steel that might later be involved in a tank turret or used for war, but yet objected to turning that very same wrench in a factory that made the tank turrets, that he found that to be a violation. The court said the decision, you know, how direct or indirect the violation, that's for the, the claimant to decide, so not the court. So what is for the court? That's what I'm trying to understand. If you can give me an example of a situation in which a plaintiff has a sincere objection to something that's within her faith, where does the court come in? 
Well, the, certainly the question of whether or not the government satisfies strict scrutiny. If they show that there's a substantial burden. I'm, but I'm just no. not getting to strict scrutiny. Right. So if a, I'm saying is there any burden that's not substantial, or is it really just up to each believer? No, I think if you – one of the ways they make a distinction is like the Camerlin case where the, the claimant played no role in what he considered to be the objection uh, – to what he considered to be objectable under his religious beliefs, and that was the later – extraction of DNA from samples. He didn't have any objection to cooperating in, this, in producing the samples. If he had, then that case would have turned out differently. So, so, it has, so go ahead. No. So just take the conscientious objector case. Thomas. Let's do it or, as a hypothetical. Okay. Would it have been open to the court to have found that, in fact, as a matter of fact, the munitions factory for which it worked was not supplying arms for the war. That, in fact, it was supplying gadgets for tractors used on farms. Could the court have examined whether his statement about what his employer was doing was correct? I think in to try to draw that hypothetical to here. I mean, that's that's an interesting hypothetical, Your Honor. I I think if he if he says that he objects to working in a in a factory that produces armaments for war, but the factory does not produce armaments for war, is that a violation of his religious beliefs? It would seem that the court could could take a look at that question to see whether or not he has sincere religious whether he has sincerely held religious beliefs no, that are being violated. No, my hypothetical is he sincerely believes that these gadgets, which are provided for tractors, produce food that, you know, is sent to troops. So it is. Could the court look at what the factory says it's doing? Yeah, I, I think the way, the way you just phrased it there, Your Honor, I'd have a problem with that because I think you're then questioning um, what his particular religious beliefs are. Some so of them even, that's what I want to be very clear. Yes. Even if the religious belief is based on a factual error, the court must accept that factual error. This well, is a hypothetical, but I, I need I, to know how far your argument right, goes. I, I understand, Your Honor, but sometimes uh, religious beliefs can't be just dispelled to, to fact because they're beliefs. And that's the if you're questioning their so belief, the whether that's a factual answer, belief. Let me just be very clear, Mr. Yep. Williams. The answer is the court cannot look at that fact to determine whether it is an accurate statement of what another party is doing. Well, insofar as, it, and if I'm hearing your, your mm -hmm. question correctly, it would be akin in this case to saying that it is not a fact that their actions that are required under the mandate violate church teaching. The court no, cannot no. make that determination. I'll, I'll, I'll take it a little closer for you and see. I think I know what your answer is going to be, but to just bring it more closely. That's why I was trying to take it out of the religious realm just to understand where we are. If, in fact, the accommodation that Judge Pillard has been discussing with you is not the trigger for the coverage, must the court nevertheless accept a statement that it is the trigger for the, co the objected to coverage? 
you must accept the fact that the actions that the government is requiring our plaintiffs to take make them complicit in an in a immoral act and violate their religious beliefs. That you have to accept, and you can't question that theological basis for it. Okay, now, the question of how direct or how indirect, I mean, the Supreme Court in Thomas could have easily have said, you know, look, you're just, you're just turning a wrench. You're not, you have an objection to fighting in a war. We're not asking you to put on a uniform. We're not asking you to take up a weapon. We're not asking you to do any of those things. Just go work in this factory and turn a wrench. Let me ask you just a couple more to explore that very point. If a conscientious objector uh, is offered the choice not to uh, be called up for the draft, right. only if she fills out a form that I'm sorry. fills out a form that states her objection, and the objector says, "No, I'm not going to fill out that form because it violates my sincerely held religious belief," and indeed. One of the concerns I have as, as an objector is that that facilitates the government filling that place, t tallying up how many people they need, and in fact is going to nullify the impact of my objection. In that circumstance, I take it that you would say that the government cannot impose a substantial burden of filling out that form on the conscientious objector. Well, see, the problem with your... Your hypothetical is it doesn't match the facts of this case. Cause it's well, not, I mean, I'm asking you about the, the hypothetical, yeah, but tell me yeah, how it's different. Well, it's, it's different in a sense that the, the, the option, what, what the option would be there wouldn't be like filling out a form. I use in Thomas, it would be, okay, you're not, you can be exempt from, if you're, if you're, number one, if you're exempt from the draft, that's different here because we're not exempt. Because there's certainly, there's only one exemption, and there's a substantive difference between no, the two. No, but it's Obviously, an accommodation to the conscientious objector that's, tr that's effectuated by filling out the form. Right, but the objector objects to filling out the form because she's right that one of the things that's going to happen as a result of that is the government's going to count and say, well, we need to draft but, another person. But it's not just filling out the form, Your Honor. That's right. the point, right? Because... The option would be for this person, and you have to go work in that, you know, that armament factory. You're, you, you're, in our case, you're giving the plaintiffs of choice to be in the frying pan or be in the fire. But I take the frying pan to be filling out the form and, no. the, and the sequelae to that, no, the, the, and the fire being facing fines. No, the, fi no. the frying pan being that they don't, they don't comply with this with the accommodation, they're, they're the same position as Gilardi, or the firing pan, it, or the fire is. Be more, I'm sorry, be more specific. So they don't fill out. They don't fill out the forms. The they don't forms, do the other aspects of the accommodation. To provide right. So then they're in the same position as Gilardi, correct? Before, after, just. Well, then, because they, they're paying, they have to pay for okay. a premium for contraceptive okay. coverage in their plants. Okay. And so the option they're given now is to do this accommodation. But the accommodation involves them in the same material cooperation to ensure that their, empl their employees and their plan beneficiaries receive contraceptive coverage because of their actions. You're, you're placing them in a position that they don't have an alternative, and then if they, if they refuse either of those, the penalty structure is the same. They get, can, they can get I penalized. I just ask a factual question. In Gilardi, if the plaintiffs... Um, had lost, then what they would have to do would either pay the fine or actually make the arrangements themselves to have their company's coverage um, extended to include contraceptive coverage, right? 
They would either have to have the coverage or they'd have to pay the fines. Right. They, they, but they themselves would have to, you know, undertake the administrative and mechanical steps, so to speak, to add that coverage, right? Coverage would be provided under their plan, the, not the, under the somebody else's they, plan. They either, they either have their plan with the coverage or they, they, pay, the, they pay the fines. Okay. So, so why isn't that a much more substantial burden than in this case where you're filling out the form but ultimately a third party is going to uh, perform what is considered to be objectionable, which is to, to provide the coverage? Well, th even in the Jelani situation, they're not the ones that are, you know, issuing the pharmaceuticals, and they're, the only difference is they're, they're paying a premium for it, and according to this accommodation, our clients are not paying a premium for it, but the contraception, they're still, the only reason why the insurance company is obligated to provide this coverage is because they find, they, they sign that certification, and as Father Bavone testified unequivocally, that is the factual and moral equivalent of authorizing the contraceptive services to his uh, to his employees, which he cannot do. He cannot do. The two cases are, are very similar. One is they provide contraception via payment. The other one, they provide contraception via a, a self-certification. The fact that you pay for it or don't pay for it doesn't change the morality of the contraception. That's a red herring that the payment is the only issue. The issue is are they complicit in a grave moral wrong by promoting the government's stated objective to increase access to and utilization of contraceptive services under the accommodation, the answer is unequivocally yes. And if they don't abide, if they don't violate their religious beliefs, then they're subject to serious fines. That is the Hobson's choice. That's a substantial burden on Gilardi that requires this court to reverse the decision below. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, Judge Rogers. May it please the court. Uh, Noel Francisco for the plaintiffs in the Archdiocese of Washington case. What I'd like to do is begin by first clearly articulating what the burden is on our clients here. And then, uh, Judge Pillard and Judge Wilkins, I'd like to address the burden issue that the two of you were raising. And then, Judge Rogers, I'd like to turn to the, the hypothetical that you put forth uh, to uh, co-counsel here. Here, the plaintiffs in the Archdiocese case uh, their religious beliefs prohibit them from doing two things. Prohibits them from providing and maintaining a health insurance policy under this regulatory scheme, and that includes signing the self-certification form. If they commit either of those two acts, they will have violated the Catholic doctrines of material cooperation with evil and scandal. Yet under this regime, the choice they are put to is to either commit those acts that are in clear violation of their religious beliefs or pay a substantial penalty. That is the very definition of what the Supreme Court and this court has consistently held is a substantial burden. Engage in acts that violate your beliefs or pay a penalty. Now, Judge Pillard, you were asking questions about what constitutes a substantial burden or an insubstantial burden. I would suggest that this court's decision in the Henderson case is a good example of an insubstantial burden. That was a case where evangelical Christians wanted to sell T-shirts on the National Mall. Their religious beliefs did not require that they tell, sell T-shirts, though it was something they did as an emanation of their religious beliefs. What this court held was that requiring them to walk across the street to sell their T-shirts, rather than selling those T-shirts on the National Mall, was an insubstantial burden. 
But what you can never do in deciding whether a burden is substantial or not is evaluate the quality of the acts from a religious perspective. So would it be a better accommodation if the government just offered the plaintiffs the opportunity to give no health plan at all and pay nothing? That's what you want? Uh, certainly no, Your Honor. We do not want that. Our, my clients have been longstanding proponents of a national health care system, and they would believe it would, be a, it, it would actually uh, require them to abandon another a aspect of their beliefs, to not provide insurance to their employees. They actually provide that as an exercise of their religion. Here, this case is So even if the government said, you provide no health care at all and you don't have to pay anything, that would not be an accommodation that's adequate? Uh, if the choice were between violating your beliefs and abandoning health insurance altogether, I absolutely think that would be a substantial burden. You're requiring them to choose between acting consistently with their beliefs or violating their beliefs on the one hand and undertaking a, a, a system that would be ruinous to, their, uh, ruinous to their enterprises through the inability to offer this uh, crucial component of a health care package, while at the same time requiring that they abandon an exercise of their beliefs. But what I'd like to focus on is that once you get into evaluating the quality of the burden, take, for example, some, an adherent to Orthodox Judaism. What makes it difficult to flip a light switch on Saturday? It's not hard. It's no harder than signing a piece of paper. The only thing that makes it difficult is that it's contrary to their beliefs. So what makes it difficult for my clients to sign the self-certification? It's not that it's hard to sign the piece of paper. It's quite easy to sign the piece of paper. The thing that makes it difficult is to sign that piece of paper requires them to engage in the, a violation of their beliefs under established Catholic doctrines of material cooperation with evil so, and scandal. So help me with the conscientious objector hypothetical that yes, I was using. I think your, if, if we were to rule for you, that would be a precedent helpful to a conscientious objector who felt that filling out a selective service form, in fact, made that person complicit in the war effort and therefore that that was a substantial burden on that person's belief. If that was a sincerely held religious belief, Your Honor, then yes, it would be a substantial burden and you would proceed to the strict scrutiny analysis, where I would suggest the government would have a very compelling argument that it could establish strict scrutiny. Here, however, the government concedes that in light of this court's decision in the Gilardi case, it cannot establish strict scrutiny. Here, this case is quite simple. We have what is at the heartland of a substantial burden. Either engage in actions that violate your beliefs, or pay substantial penalty. The courts have always held that whatever else substantial burden means, that is at the very heartland of the substantial burden that can only be justified under strict scrutiny, which the government concedes here can't meet under the court's decision in Gilardi. Would um, a member of the Society of Friends who did not want to pay taxes to the federal government, income taxes, because a substantial portion of the monies collected through income taxes are used for military. That person would also would there be would there be a compelling interest in extracting those taxes? Uh, I think under Lee, under the Supreme Court's decision in Lee, if they sincerely believed under their religious beliefs they could not pay those taxes, that pay, requiring them to pay would be a substantial burden. But likewise, but under Lee, interest. it would satisfy strict scrutiny. That's precisely the, what the Supreme Court confronted there when an Amish farmer objected to paying into the Social Security tax system because doing that made the Amish farmer complicit in allowing his fellow Amish to shirk their duties and taking care of the elderly, which they believed was on their own. 
The court agreed that that was, in fact, a substantial burden, but nonetheless struck it down under strict scrutiny. I think, Judge Pillard, that would answer your hypothetical. Here, however, the strict scrutiny side of the equation is quite easy because, as I've noted, the government concedes that under Gilardi it can't meet strict scrutiny. Judge Rogers, I would like to address the hypothetical that you were raising because it's a very interesting and difficult one. The way I would answer it is if the plaintiffs, for example, believed that the munitions factory made armaments and they were simply wrong, and if you could show that they were objectively wrong and if you could convince them that if they were objectively wrong it wouldn't violate their beliefs, then yes. No, but see, it's that latter phrase. Yeah, I'm going to take the second half of it. No, but it's that latter phrase, if you could convince them. Sure. All right, so that doesn't really meet the hypothetical. Right. He still believes the factory. Yeah, and that's what I'd like to address next. If, suppose they adopted a religious system that had irrational beliefs, say, for example, they believed in a religion that understood the earth to be flat and certain things required them to act contrary to that belief, contrary to the belief that the earth is flat. Well, if that's their sincerely held belief, then yes, I think that would impose a substantial burden because notwithstanding the fact that they've adopted an irrational system of beliefs, since it's not up to the court. I mean, that has to be your position, doesn't it? Yes, but then you proceed to strict scrutiny. There is no role for the court in determining whether there is a substantial burden, even though the court had evidence before it that there was a factual error. I would not agree with that statement, Your Honor. All right. On that statement, first, I think the court's role is at the threshold in determining sincerity, but we'll assume that we get past that. No, we're beyond that. Then the court has to determine whether the burden is, in fact, substantial in the sense of the Henderson case that I was talking about before. However, where the juxtaposition is violate your beliefs no matter how irrational they may be or pay a fine, that is at the heartland of a substantial burden. But that's what the court's role is. Are you being put to that kind of choice? But isn't it, Henderson, isn't it in effect pay a fine? You're going to be relegated to an area where there's much less foot traffic and you're going to make a lot less money on your T-shirt sales and you're ending up having extracted because of your, you know, in contrary to your religious beliefs, having some money extracted from you. Yeah, I don't think so, Your Honor. And you say no because where you sell isn't part of your religious beliefs. I don't think so, Your Honor, because the court, in fact, distinguished those cases where you were put to the choice between violating your beliefs or paying a fine. They considered it to be quite de minimis to require you to walk across the street, particularly where your beliefs did not require that you sell those T-shirts. I have a question about whether the claims of Thomas Aquinas College and the church plan plaintiffs, other than the archdiocese, whether their RFRA claims are, in fact, ripe. Because it seems like there's some question what the exact mechanism is. And, in fact, they don't have a third-party administrator who's refused, as far as I know. So don't we need to have, wouldn't we really benefit from more factual development on what actually happens in a situation like that? Your Honor, yes, I think they're ripe. And, no, I don't think you would benefit from any further factual development. The first thing I'd point out is that while the government pressed a standing issue in the district court, they have not pressed that issue before this court. I recognize this court still needs to address the justiciability questions itself, but I do think it's telling that this is not an issue that the government pressed in its briefs here. It's in their brief. Excuse me? It's in their brief. 
in the facts section describing what happened. No, it's in their argument section, but it's not a heading. I mean, if that's your point. I could be mistaken on that, but my recollection was that it wasn't. Regardless, though, Your Honor, what the plaintiffs, including the church plan plaintiffs and including Thomas Aquinas, are objecting to are not what ultimately the third-party administrator does or does not do. Our affidavits clearly establish, and we put in these affidavits after the government launched this brand-new argument, our affidavits clearly establish that the plaintiffs object to signing that self-certification, regardless of whether the third-party administrator decides to or decides not to provide the contraceptive coverage. And let me unpack that just by talking for a minute about how this regulatory regime works with respect to self-insured plans. Basically, if you accept, and I'm just going to proceed. I may be misremembering. We have a lot going on this morning. But I had thought that you had said you didn't object to signing the self-certification, that it was the sequelae that you objected to. Your Honor, if you look at the joint appendix at pages 398 to 399, that's the supplemental affidavit of Catholic Charities, but the others put in a substantially similar affidavit. It makes crystal clear that we object to signing that self-certification because signing that self-certification renders the plaintiffs morally complicit in immoral conduct under the doctrines of material cooperation and scandal. So we clearly object to signing that self-certification. So if I could go back to how the regulations work with respect to self-insured plans. Basically, this accepts the government's latest understanding of the regulatory regime. Once the plaintiff issues the self-certification to the third-party administrator, that does two things. One, it allows the third-party administrator to provide contraceptive coverage if it wants to. The government's view is that it can no longer force the third-party administrator to do that through fines and penalties. But the TPA can do that if it wants to. And significantly, the other thing the TPA can do is then seek reimbursement from the government at a guaranteed 10% profit as set forth in the regulations. Absent the issuance of that self-certification, the third-party administrator can do neither of those things. Plaintiffs, therefore, believe that submitting that self-certification to their third-party administrator violates their religious beliefs regardless of what the third-party administrator does. Let me provide a hypothetical that gives a little bit of context to this. It is well known that... Can I just interject? Am I correct that if the third-party administrator doesn't get certification, they can't do anything? Could the government then arrange for something else? Is that when they said they would arrange for something else? If the TPA does not get the certification, you are correct, it can't do anything. And then, presumably, the government could do whatever it wants. We don't know. Presumably, the government could say, and this actually, if strict scrutiny were in play, would go to narrow tailoring. The government could simply make those products available through Title X clinics or through a variety of other means that don't involve the plaintiffs. But that's ultimately the problem here. The bottom line in this case, and I know your honors have been very patient with my time, and I'm happy to answer any other questions you have and would ask that I nonetheless be granted my two minutes rebuttal time. The bottom line here is that we're talking about the heartland of a substantial burden. Violate your beliefs or pay a fine. That can only be justified under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, subject to strict scrutiny, which under Gilardi, the government can't meet in this case. I'm happy to answer any other questions. So even as to persons who are exempt, there is still the objection? I just need to be clear. If the government says, as to the self-insured, 
that they can't enforce anything. And as you just answered to Judge Pillard, we don't know what the government might do. Isn't that the end of the matter? We just need to be clear on that. Well, to make sure I understand your question, Your Honor, religious employers, quote-unquote religious employers that meet the regulatory definition are exempt. Precisely. And for that category of employers, of which none of the plaintiffs except for the archdiocese itself are a part, we're not here arguing that there's any substantial burden. And those plaintiffs who use the church plan? Those plaintiffs who use the church plan are not exempt religious employers. Right. They are eligible organizations, and they're required to submit that self-certification form. They object on religious grounds to issuing that self-certification form. Yet unless they do so, they are subject to a penalty. I have just one final question about the regulation that prohibits the plaintiffs from directly or indirectly seeking to influence the third-party administrator's decision whether or not to provide contraceptive coverage. If that were construed only to prohibit non-speech interference based on a government interest in providing the care, in other words, not in suppressing speech, the third-party administrator can say whatever it wants, the plaintiffs can say whatever they want, but we want the system to function, am I right that that would be analyzed under O'Brien? So that would mean we would be allowed to, for example, tell our third-party administrator, if you provide these products to our employees by virtue of their enrollment on our plan, we are going to fire you. Right, but it wouldn't allow you to fire them. Would that be analyzed under O'Brien? Your Honor, I don't think so, because I still think that we're talking about a con – I think that we're essentially talking about a content-based speech restriction, particularly where the government concedes that you can't force the third-party administrator to do anything. That means we can't fire our third-party administrator for doing something that the third-party administrator is, in fact, not even required to do. That's right. Yeah. So if we interpreted the – first of all, do you think we could interpret the regulation that way? And if we did, do you think it still raises a First Amendment problem? I think so, yes. So the cases on which the government is relying, where – are you just saying they're contextually distinct? In other words, the cases where the Supreme Court has said, you know, there's no First Amendment protection in the labor context if, while the employer is free to say he opposes unionization and to say it vigorously even, he can't retaliate. I think they're talking about cases where the speech is incidental to a regulation of conduct. That's a case like Title VII prohibits racial discrimination. You can't discriminate on the basis of race. Ergo, you can't put up a poster saying only whites need apply because it's incidental to the regulation of conduct. Here, what we have pejoratively called the gag rule regulates speech quite directly. I mean, I think if you look up the word influence in the dictionary, it's hard to come up with an understanding of that term that doesn't implicate speech. And Judge Pillard, which may also go to your question, courts don't typically give savings constructions to broad language that implicates the First Amendment precisely because the breadth of the language has the danger of chilling speech. Rather, the right answer is to strike it down and tell the government if they want to get at something different, they ought to adopt a clear statutory language that clearly goes with what they're getting at rather than broad and ambiguous language that has the necessary effect 
of chilling lawful speech. All right, thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. on the other side today is that this case is essentially the same as Gilardi. And the problem, I mean, among the many problems with that is that there in Gilardi you had a plaintiff who was required to comply with the provisions of the Affordable Care Act dealing with women's preventive health services in their entirety, including contraceptive services. These plaintiffs do not. They can opt out. There's been a suggestion that they're not really opting out, but in fact they are. I mean, they're being told, you have religious objections. You are eligible to assert them. Once you opt out, you don't have to provide them. You can say whatever you like about whether this continues to be a burden or not, but it can't be that it is the same as Gilardi. It can't be that if you're told you have to provide it and you're told you don't have to provide it, that that's the same case. If it's different from Gilardi but still a substantial burden, then that doesn't get you very far. So can you address the question of what the court's appropriate role is in light of the sincerity of the plaintiff's beliefs and in light of their understanding that it is a substantial burden? Yeah, we don't think that it's a question in which the court, in determining what's a substantial burden, we don't think, and we're pretty sure this court has said in Mahoney and Camerling, which we cite and quote in our briefs, that the court does have a role that, as Mahoney said, it's a question of law, not a question of fact. And I'm not sure, Judge Miller, that this is sort of exactly what you were getting at when you were talking about an objection that's sort of based on a factual misapprehension. But underlying all of the arguments here is the assertion that by taking, by opting out, there is what the plaintiffs have described as a permission slip being handed to insurers and presumably to the federal government, which actually... Even rejecting that position, their argument is they are facilitating the provision of these objectionable services to their employees. That's right, and on page 28 of Plaintiff's Brief, they lay out with some more specificity what they describe as the six actions and forbearances. But their belief is that the self-certification triggers the insurer's obligation. That's how they describe it in their brief. They're quoting. Yes, I mean, but one can describe it as triggering, 
But what it is is that the federal government, not the plaintiffs, are requiring, is requiring the insurers or the third-party administrator to provide coverage. All that is happening is that the plaintiffs are opting out. So their response is that the government is impermissibly evaluating the seriousness or centrality of aspects of their stated religious belief. I mean, they say that, but I don't think that that's really a viable proposition because what the plaintiffs are being told is you have to do exactly what you would do if you were telling your third-party administrator or your insurer that you don't want to provide coverage. You just tell them that. So even if the government were to do nothing, you would go, if there were just a regime which said, if you notify your third-party, your insurer, that you don't want to have coverage provided and then there was no coverage provided, that presumably even plaintiffs would agree was a fine scheme. The problem that they have is that at that point, the government says to the insurer, independently, the government says to the insurer, you have to provide coverage. That's what they're objecting to. They're objecting to what I think is the sequelae to the action, not to the fact that they are telling their insurer that they don't want to provide coverage because that's something they would have to do anyway. Well, let me just be clear so I understand. Their view is that before the Affordable Care Act, they provided health coverage, health care coverage to their employees, but it did not have any provision for contraceptive services. Were they to continue in that situation, that's fine. But now they're being told, no, their plan, albeit they're not giving the orders, but their health plan for their employees now has to include the objective to services. But it doesn't. I mean, just as a factual matter, it doesn't. And explain to me why not. Well, I mean, I think that the regs that we talked about at great length in our brief sort of explain that once your insurer is told that you're not providing it, that the regs lay out very specifically all the ways in which the insurer is obliged to both make absolutely clear that what it's doing is not part of the plaintiff's or whatever the institution's health plan. It's offered separately. It doesn't look the same. People are told it's not the same. It functions differently. It's not even technically insurance. It's just a different animal altogether. And that's what's happening. And there is no sense in which their plan is now being altered. And what they object to is the fact that they have to tell somebody, and presumably it wouldn't make any difference if they told the government and the government told the insurer. I don't think that that's the problem. What they object to is simply the fact that once they opt out, then government 
regulations independently kick in. And that, we don't think, is something that can be sort of brought in to the realm of a substantial burden. And I also do think it's important, I do think that the Supreme Court's cases make clear that in evaluating sort of a, an asserted burden, the interests of other parties really do come into this. And the court um, said that in, most, in Cutter versus Wilkinson, where the court was talking about um, Rilupo, which, you know, as this court knows, mm-hmm. was um, patterned on RIFRA, you know, and the court at um, 544 U.S. 720 specifically said that the courts in applying RILUPA had to take adequate account of the burdens that an accommodation may pose on non-beneficiaries. And also, I think somewhat um, instructively, in the Title VII context, for, <coughs> excuse me, my voice is going today, um, in the Title VII context, which presumably to some extent um, informed um, Congress's um, sort of understanding of what RIFRA law was likely to look like in the reasonable accommodation provision of Title VII in um, TWA versus Hardison, which we cite in our brief at 432 U.S. at 81, the court's very concerned that a in that case, we, the, the, the plaintiff um, was asserting a right, was, was complaining that his preference for, work, for not working on a Saturday is sincerely held, not his preference, is sincerely held religious belief that he could not work on Saturday, had not been honored, and that he was fired. And the court says, look, the accommodation does not go so far as to say that to accommodate you, others, are going to be disadvantaged because what we give to you is going to be taken away from somebody else. And what we have here is a claim that that employees who may not at all share the religious beliefs of the plaintiffs are being told they don't have a, they, they simply do not have this aspect of women's preventive health services. And a similar claim, after all, could be made about any kind of sort of like insurance for health services. It could be made by people who have sincerely held beliefs about inoculation or or anything else. And plaintiffs in each case would say, you know, okay, I want the court to evaluate this under strict scrutiny. So essentially everything in the U.S. Code is going to be evaluated on strict well, scrutiny. Isn't that their response to your third-party interest argument, that that's part of the scru- strict scrutiny I, analysis, I not the substantial I, I don't analysis. think that the Supreme Court has been sort of quite so no. sort of diagrammatic in its analysis. I mean, a lot of things that sort of get, when the Supreme Court's been in the First Amendment context and then in Rilupa, in Cutter, I think the court is sort of you know, and I think Justice Ginsburg and Rilupa was sort of talking about the general principles mm. of how of trying to reconcile the imperatives of the free exercise clause and the establishment clause and how that there had to be play in the joints in order to make the two equally important clauses work together. Mr. Stern, can I ask you an ERISA question again going to the... <laughs> oh, I, um, every time someone asks me an ERISA question, I... Makes your day. Um, Is there a reason 
why the self-certification has to be the document that I gather under the regulations is the document that designates the third-party administrator as the plan administrator I, for purposes of... I really of think that this is, you know, my, my brother was like, if I say more than a couple of lines about this, I'm going to, like, sort of find myself in quicksand. But what the regulation makes absolutely clear um, in brief is that the is that the third-party administrator will not act as the plan administrator for purposes of the um, for contraceptive coverage. And I mean, it's just what you would have to do is to tell your third-party administrator, like even if there was no subsequent government requirement, if you would tell you'd have to tell your third-party administrator. By the way, I don't want to, like, my plan does not include contraceptive coverage. And again, I don't think plaintiffs would have any objection to that in the abstract. What they object to is the fact that after they're being, after the third-party administrator is told that the plaintiff, that the, um, that the eligible organization doesn't want to provide um, contraceptive coverage, that there is then an independent obligation that's being imposed by federal law. So I, I, the sort of the intricacies of exactly how a risk of work don't change the subject of it. And I would point out that if plaintiffs, if that were really the problem, I mean, plaintiffs like, could decide, you know, could, could use a third-party, like a third-party insurer instead of a self-insured plan. They could also opt not to use an administrator, in which case there's a safe harbor altogether. So, so maybe I'm asking too technical of a question, but it's, is there anything about ERISA that requires that the plaintiffs be the one who designate the plan administrator for these purposes? In other words, I take it that it really was trying to just make it one step and actually ease the functioning of this accommodation that the government said, well, let's just make the certification be the plan document that designates the plan administrator for ERISA purposes, and then the plan administrator will will implement the new coverage. But it does play into their concern that there's some kind of triggering going on here, and I just wondered if there's, if you could have on a HHS website a form that the TPA then downloads, and that becomes the document that designates the TPA as the plan administrator for ERISA purposes for purposes of these self-insured um, plans. The short answer is I don't know. Okay. The sort of the sort note that I would put on is that I don't think it makes any difference to plaintiff's argument, which is in the end, after all, the same for insure if whether or not you're insured or self-insured. I mean, either way, what they're objecting to is the fact that following an opt-out there is a separate government obligation. And here, I mean, in the case of third-party administrators, the government's actually even paying for this. I mean, this is just a direct attack on the fact that the government is funding benefits that the plaintiffs do not believe should be provided to their employees. But, but, but in the uh, Notre Dame case, um, the counsel for the plaintiffs there conceded that if there were basically um, a direct pay kind of um, this public option type system, they would have no objection. So I think if my, my, if my recollection of the Notre Dame argument is correct, the, the plaintiff 
plaintiff's counsel there clearly objected to any statement made to the government or anyone else that where the next step was going to be that there was going to be a provision pursuant to the government's regulation of the contraceptive coverage. I believe counsel was extremely explicit about that at the argument. But I know, Judge Wilkins, what you're referring to, and I believe that counsel here, too, have made some representations that if there was, I don't know what they really mean, but that if there were essentially just a generalized third-party sort of, you know, coverage that the government, you know, made available, you know, for, you know, contraceptive coverage, and that that was so that there was no obligation on anybody, on any employer, to provide contraceptive coverage. You see, if you took that part of the regulation out, and then you simply said anybody who wants to sign up for general third-party coverage that the government's going to create, that would be okay. I think that that's what the argument is. Well, isn't that what your argument suggests, where you say that women will receive contraceptive service despite, not because of plaintiff's religious objections? Well, we think that that's true. What we're talking about is the choice of mechanism. And we think that in practice, what's happening for these employers who opt out, that in fact, that's exactly what's happening. That effectively, the government is coming in and offering a sort of the equivalent of a third-party payer system. But plaintiffs say that's not all right because I first had to opt out before that could happen. What they want is sort of just a generalized system in which there is no obligation in which they have to opt out. Or suppose the plaintiffs could say, excuse me, if there is a particular employee under their plan that wants contraceptive services but is not getting it, then why couldn't they just fill out a form and say, I work for a religious employer that doesn't provide it. So, you know, trigger whatever you need to trigger so that I get that coverage. It appears that they wouldn't have any objection to that. I think, though, that that starts to become, like, the argument there is that the government would have to erect a third-party payer system because a third-party payer system for everybody, I think, would have to be sort of in place. I mean, what this is, is all that happens here is effectively the plaintiff notifies the government and the employer that they aren't providing the coverage. They would have to do that anyway. At that point, the government comes in and says to third parties that, you know, good, you provide the coverage, and in the case of the third-party administrators, we'll pay for the coverage. The idea that there is an objection to an opt-out of this nature when the regulations bend over backwards to take care of the problem that was perceived to exist in Gilardi, I mean, that's really, I always hate to use the word unprecedented, but I actually think that this is unprecedented. Mr. Stern, what about this regulation that Judge Jackson found to be an unconstitutional restriction of 
speech. Can we, you know, your opponents have argued that we can't in the First Amendment context give this a narrowing construction. It still would chill speech. And are you proposing that it be limited? I take you to be proposing that it be limited to conduct. And is that, uh, is that enough to cure it? How do you respond mm -hmm. to well, I think first, I think I can't remember the name of the case, but I believe we cited Judge Williams' opinion in our brief, um, which is you, in fact, can give a um, limiting reading to a regulation when it's when it's being challenged. The Wagner case, you mean? Excuse me, Your Honor? The Wagner case? Yes. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I, it is Wagner. Sorry, I couldn't remember the name. The, but the, the argument is... Look, we're standing here saying, no, we don't, that that is not what the regulation means. And when I say, no, the agencies that promulgated the regulation should not be taken at their word. It means something else. And if it meant something else, it would be unconstitutional. So Judge Jackson, Judge Posner all expressed some concern about this footnote 41 and... In your brief, I guess, in response to Judge Jackson, you say, no, what the government's talking about is this economic um, conduct and that you could have a calm discussion um, between the religious organization and the third-party provider. I mean, is I that think the you, government's position? Well, I think you can do more than have a calm discussion. Well, I think that's what your brief says. Well, I think we were, I think we were quoting the district court's right. opinion. Right, yeah, you um, were. We, we think that you can say pretty much whatever you, you want to say. But you can't fire. No, we, th we actually think you can. We, you we can think, fire? Yeah, I mean, we think that because... How do, how do we know this? So, because you cite these two cases that talk about you can't... Uh, fire, you can't, no reprisals, no. You after canvassing the three <laughs> agencies at some length, and I, look, this is not a artfully drafted regulation, but we sort of, it was not intended to, and does not, the, the point of this is, and it's probably pretty unlikely that this could ever arise, but the point of it is, is that if you are sort of impermissibly trying to coerce someone who has a legal obligation, which is to say you're insurer, and you're trying to in some respect collude with them to get them not to fulfill their duty, then that's prohibited. Now, if you fire somebody, that might create all sorts of problems for you, but it does, but it's something you can do because at that point, your insurer does not have any duties anymore. So this, this may be the minutia, but you added footnote, or footnote 41 was added. And yet, in the previous page, there was a blanket statement about nothing in these final regulations precludes employers from expressing their views, et cetera. Do you know why footnote 41 then was necessary? No. Because... I gather from the rest of your brief, you're saying that an employer can fire a provider. Yes. Um, so that we're just misreading the regulation. Your Honor, the as I say, it's not an artfully drafted regulation, right. but the but the interpretation of the agencies is 
that is what I'm telling the court here. And this seems wrong to attribute to a regulation a meaning that the agencies disavow in order to say that if it meant something else. What does it mean? What's left of it if you can do everything? You can interfere in every way except what? Well, I think it's really designed to just deal with something that's extremely unlikely to happen, but a collusion between, like, a employer and a insurer that in which the aim is to have the insurer, while he's still the insurer, to not fulfill its obligations. Again, I don't think it's very likely to happen, but that is all that it was intended to do. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much, Your Honor. I'll be very brief, and I appreciate you. Yes, Counsel, Mr. Mews. Yes, Your Honor, and I'll be very brief, and I appreciate the indulgence on all the extra time we've had, and I just kind of want to summarize, because I think in the final analysis, when you review what the government's arguments are and even particularly what the district courts held below, they purport to resolve the religious question underlying this case. Does authorizing the immoral coverage via the government's so-called accommodation scheme impermissibly assist the commission of a wrongful act in violation of the moral doctrines of the Catholic Church and the moral consciences of plaintiffs? And no civil authority can decide that question. The question of this court is not whether compliance with the contraception mandate and the accommodation can be reconciled with the teachings of the Catholic Church. That's a question of religious conscience for the plaintiffs. They've concluded that their legal and religious obligations are incompatible. The contraception mandate forces them to do what their religion forbids. Now, the question is, when does the burden then become substantial? And Gelati tells us the burden becomes substantial when they're faced with a Hobson's choice. So even writing a letter to the secretary simply saying, we're opting out or we're not participating, we don't want our plan to be approved. It's not just the form. If they wrote a letter and said, exempt us, and they're exempted and there's no contraceptive coverage for their plan participants and beneficiaries, they're exempt. That's an exemption. Well, you're using exempt. I'm trying to use the accommodation notion of sending a letter saying, our plan is not to include contraceptive services, period. But the problem is, under their accommodations. But you would object to that letter as well. I would object to that letter if the effect of that letter is that their employees' plan beneficiaries get contraceptive coverage. What they're asking them to do is they're asking them to participate in the government scheme, which stated objective is to increase access to and utilization of contraceptive services. That's what their goal is. And quite frankly, for my client, Priests for Life, that is antithetical to the very purpose for why this organization exists. That is a substantial burden on the religious exercise, and it should be struck down under RFRA. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. If I could make three brief points. First, if you look at pages A16 to A17 of the blue brief, that's the appendix, the regulations are set forth. On page A16, the regulation states, if a third- What? You have a- Sure. Pages A16 to A17 of the blue brief, where we have the regulations, 
Your Honor, I unfortunately don't have the exact federal CFR pin set. That's what I have all marked up. Yeah, I apologize. Hold on just a sec. You will. All right. I think Judge Sentel yelled at me once for not referring to what was in the brief, and so I switched to that policy. And I always think, well, you know, they may have missed a comma or a period, so I want the federal register copy. That's wise. All right. So where are we? So at the top of page A16, it's the paragraph 2. I think it's 2713A. Yes, Your Honor. Right. If a third-party administrator receives a copy of the self-certification, then if you follow it down, the third-party administrator shall provide or arrange payments for contraceptive services. Plaintiffs object to issuing that self-certification. Issuing that self-certification, in their view, renders them morally complicit in immoral conduct under the Catholic doctrines we've described. If you flip to page A17, it's the parallel provision for group health insurers. A group health insurer, a group health issuance insurer that receives a copy of the self-certification, and then if you follow it down, it says, must switch over to subparagraph B, provide separate payments for any contraceptive services. My clients object to issuing that self-certification because issuing that self-certification renders them morally complicit in immoral conduct under Catholic doctrine. Yet if they don't issue that self-certification, they are subject to a substantial penalty. So hypothetically, if there were an independent U.S. government health care system for contraceptive services, all right, and your clients could continue to have their health plans the way they've always had them without contraceptive services, there is no problem. Let me answer it this way. There is no problem under the hypothetical that Judge Wilkins was outlining where the employees are the ones that raise their hand. All right. And they say, I have an insurance plan that doesn't provide coverage. If you involve my clients in it, then I actually, Your Honor, don't know the answer to that because then they would have to reevaluate that scheme under their religious beliefs to determine whether their conduct rendered them morally complicit under Catholic doctrine. You understand there's no conduct. That's what I'm trying to understand. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And in the scenario that Judge Wilkins outlined, then correct. We would not object to that. Mr. Francisco, what about a plan under which an employer pays wages and says, I'm going to pay, you know, slightly less per hour to employees who will not certify that they forswear the use of contraceptives because I'm afraid that the wages that I pay to my employees will otherwise be used to make me complicit in something that I believe is a sin. And so the question is. Is that protected as a reasonable accommodation or required under RFRA as a reasonable accommodation to the employer's religious beliefs? If the employer, if it was based on a sincere religious belief by the employer, I would say it would impose a substantial burden if they were subject to fines, but I think it would be pretty easy to establish that that satisfies strict scrutiny. Why? I would say that it's pursuant to the government's compelling interest in prohibiting sex discrimination. And here, and again, it would be the government's burden. It's not men versus women. It's women who want contraception and women who don't. Sure. And I think that, bear in mind, the government bears the burden of proof on strict scrutiny, so I'm not sure what they would argue. Standing here hearing the hypothetical for the first time, I think I could pretty easily spin out a tale of why that furthers a compelling government interest and is narrow tailored. I think the more. A compelling governmental interest in what? So in this hypothetical, you're paying less to anyone who doesn't forswear using contraception. I'd say you've got a compelling governmental interest in protecting the privacy of your third-party employees on what they're doing. 
and that this is a narrowly tailored way of furthering that interest. Here, however, of course, we've got Gillari, so the strict scrutiny half is pretty easy. But the first point is I just wanted to bring the Court's attention to the specific regulations so you know exactly what it is that we're challenging, exactly what it is we believe our religious beliefs forbid us from doing. Secondly, I wanted to quickly address the ripeness issue because I don't feel like I gave it as fulsome an answer as I should have. We are objecting to regulations, including the church plan plaintiffs, that currently apply to them right now, this very day. Right now, the church plan plaintiffs are required to provide a health insurance plan that itself includes contraceptive coverage unless they issue that certification. If they don't provide that health insurance plan, then they're subject to fines. The only way they get out from under that obligation is by issuing the self-certification. They are therefore, right now, absent the injunction that's currently in place, would be required to issue that self-certification. Issuing that self-certification itself is contrary to the religious beliefs. Were you to strike down or uphold, or were you to uphold the gag rule, we would be currently subjected to that right now. These are all things that apply to the plaintiffs right now in which they have alleged constitute, uh, if they were to comply, constitute violations of their religious beliefs. So I think there's no question but that this case is a right one. And then the final and quick point is as to the relevance of third-party burdens. I think the Supreme Court was relatively clear that that's relevant to the strict scrutiny analysis. It's, un uh, it's hard to understand why it would be relevant to determining whether there's a burden on a religious believer's beliefs, since after all, their beliefs could well be burdened by harms to third parties. I understand the argument, but what's your strongest case? Uh, Gillardy itself, where right, their burden was right. no less so than here on okay. third parties. But that's not the Supreme Court. Uh, Oh, I think the Supreme, oh, the Supreme Court's decision, I think, was it the, the, the case that upheld Arlupa, talked about third-party burdens in the context of strict scrutiny. I think it was Cutter. All right. I think that's the case it was, Your Honor. Okay. Anything further? No, no Your Honor. Thank you. Take Thank the you. case under advisement.